over 15 years experience as a Marine infantryman. I have over 20 years experience as a law enforcement officer. Combined, we have about 30 years of experience as firearms instructors and 32 years of experience carrying concealed weapons. The purpose of this show is to discuss firearms, equipment, and training as it relates to self-defense from a military, law enforcement, and civilian perspective. Episode number 90 of Gunfire Cast. I'm Daniel Shaw. John, not with me on this intro, but you'll hear on the rest of the episode. Uh, it's not fair. He was in the entire last episode, and I was only here for the intro, so I'm still in the entire intro of this episode. I was thinking when I was listening to that thing, like, man, the best episode ever of Gunfire Cast. I'm not even on it. Anyway, I'm not going to run my mouth very long here. I'm going to get right to it. Uh, I just want to ask you guys if you will go support those who support Gunfire Cast by going and checking out Aries Gear uh, at AriesGear.com. Uh, I'll have links to all these in the show notes for you to go just click and go buy stuff. John and I both swear by their belts. Uh, they've been great supporters of Gunfighter Cast and also G-Code. We're both using G-Code holsters uh, and completely swear by them. I've been using them for a while. Uh, John just recently got completely sold on them. And uh, Dark Angel Medical, go get some training uh, or buy your next uh, blowout kit, your next medical kit through Dark Angel. Check out that dark or the pocket dark while you're over there. If you really, really want to support Gunfighter Cast, then you'll go sign up for a class from uh, Paratus Academy, my company. I got a couple things going on there with that. Warrior Summit, August 30th through September 2nd. My classes are actually doing a carving course on uh, the 31st, and I'm also doing another one on the 1st. These are just both uh, the same course, just two days. There's also, if you're only going to make it to one training event this entire year, uh, that Warrior Summit is the one you want to get to. Working on everything from zero to a thousand yards uh, and, and anything in between. Unarmed knife, handgun, rifle, all the way to a uh, long gun out to a thousand. So go check that out. Links to that up there as well. And that Warrior Summit will be in uh, Garrisville, Ohio. Uh, I'm also doing a hand, handgun vitals one and two in Taylorsville, Georgia, September 13th and 14th. Uh, if you're near there, Taylorsville is about 30 minutes from Atlanta, from my understanding. Uh, go check that one out. And I also have a handgun vitals one and two in Greensboro that I'm scheduled in North Carolina uh, for September 21st and 22nd. So hope to see you guys at one of those, and I'll be making an announcement again here really soon about something that uh, Paul Carlson and I are doing together uh, down here in North Carolina, right here in my hometown. It's going to be a good time, so keep your ears peeled. All right, well, that's all I got, and I hope to see you guys at class soon, and uh, enjoy this podcast as much as I am. I haven't heard it yet, so you guys have been suffering, or I've been suffering right along next to you guys who have got all that information that came out of the first one and still waiting on the second one. So here it is. Thanks. All right, more more questions. I actually had on the list bull barrels, but you've already covered that. So here's one that, uh, you know, I I sometimes see people argue about, full-length guide rods. Well, yeah, there's a couple of full-length guide rods out there. Um, When we talk about full-length guide rods, if you've got a bull barrel, you're probably going to have a reverse plug and a full-length guide rod or something very close to it. Um, But when we're talking with bushing-barreled guns, I'm not sure what the... Where it came from, I think the full-length guide rod was supposed to make the gun more reliable or stop spring kink or something like that. And I kind of experimented with it for a dozen years. I was running a 5-inch gun side-by-side with another 5-inch gun. Both prepped very similarly. One had a full-length guide rod. One had a GI guide rod. I couldn't tell the difference. I was running them the same way. I was using them the same way. Whatever I did with one, I would do with another. And I really didn't notice any difference. Hmm. There wasn't an accuracy difference or anything else. Um, what I did notice was that it was more difficult to take the full-length guide rod gun apart. But that was it. And even then, okay, that took an extra couple of seconds. You know, because you know, we're talking about two-length guide rod, or two-piece guide rod, for example, on that one, where you take an Allen wrench and unscrew it, and part of it comes out, and then you take it apart like a regular 1911. Okay, um, but I'm not sure if there's if they really added anything to it. I haven't seen anything that says oh they they do. People who love them are passionate about them, and they'll tell you everything that I'm you know that I just said is wrong and that they do all these great things, <laughs> and that may be so for their guns. Yeah, but I would challenge you to look across the board at who uses full length guide rods, and for what purpose. 
Now, if they have reverse plugs, meaning the spring plug, and when we say reverse plug, we mean that it comes in from behind the slide, and it's actually captured in there by a separate tool, pretty much this looks like a straightened out coat hanger with a 90 degree bend in it, mm -hmm. and there's a hole in the guide rod, so you would lock the gun open, then you would stick this tool in there, and that would lock, that would basically capture that spring on the guide rod. And then you could take the gun apart because you eased it forward. Now it's trapped by that little rod. And I'm not explaining it all that perfectly, but it's actually it's just an extra step. Yeah, I and think you're explaining it good. My, my, uh, I think I have a puzzled look because, uh, it seems like a, it seems like more of a pain in the ass. Now, if I want to take this apart, I've got to have the special 90 degree coat hanger tool to, to get it apart, or I've got to find something to, that's just my point. Yeah. But if you own a Kimber Pro or a Kimber Ultra, meaning mm -hmm. the four or three inch guns, that's what you need to take that gun apart. And that's just what they did. That's the way they designed it. It's, and again, if you have a bull barrel, which remember the Pro and the Ultras are bull barrels, they're going to have that. Whereas if you have a, a bushing barrel gun, you don't need to have that two or that full length guide rod or that, you know, that reverse plug mm -hmm. in captured guide rod or captured spring. Um, it's just, you know, it adds a layer of complexity that isn't necessary, I believe. But the other, you know, you hear people say, and it's important to address this, you can't have a full-length guide rod because in a tactical situation, when you're spider repelling down from the helicopter and your 1911 fails, it makes it impossible to take it apart, fix it, and put it back together and continue the fight. And I'm throwing in the spider repelling from mm -hmm. the helicopter part, but the reason that I make like light of that is because I was I want to find the guy who, in the middle of the gunfight, decided that my 1911 failed, and I need to take it apart right now. Yeah, he's probably out there. <laughs> All right, yeah. we may find him. Just haven't met him yet. I just haven't met him yet. Yeah, I haven't met anybody who's taken their gun apart. You know, their average run-of-the-mill carry gun apart mm -hmm. in the middle of a gunfight, fixed it, put it back together, and kept fighting. I think Jet Li did it in one of the lethal weapons. Sure, so, sure. But that's, that's a different thing. I digress. <laughs> no, but it's just so I so when you look at full-length guide rod, you know, uh, maybe it's the voodoo. Some, some people say it's great. I think, again, the further you get away from the original design, the more likely you are to have problems. And I got a question. Uh, actually, one of the uh, listeners on the Facebook page um, had asked about um, specifically guide rods that require an Allen wrench to disassemble. And mm -hmm. I, I think your answer was basically it's just another step to. It, yeah, it's another step, and you have to have that tool with you. Yeah. Uh, the the remember you can take apart a 1911, a real one, or built to original specs, take it apart with nothing but the gun. And put it back together with nothing but the gun. And, you know, we tried this experiment uh, about two weeks ago with JB. Uh, JB's a facilities manager at the SIG Academy. And we sat down and we did it. And it's one of the reasons, like, you, everybody's making, you know, looking at the new M45, the Marine Corps gun. Mm -hmm. And it's got these really big, obnoxious flathead screws on it. You know, for grip screws. Well, if you look at the sear spring, the three-legged sear spring, the base of it that locks into the receiver, the frame on it, is actually the screwdriver used to take those off. Hmm. And it's wide enough where it can actually undo those screws. Now, if you have the right kind of 1911 grips, you don't have to take the grip panels off in order to take the gun apart and put it back together. But you can if you needed to. Yeah. All right. And it's, again, you, you know, the gun itself can be taken apart and put back together with itself, just with its own parts. You know, you have to know how to do it, but it is possible to do it. Now, so. you kind of remind me of something. The, uh, the plug um, that is on the end of the guide rod contains the uh, the recoil spring, the yeah. plug. The, the spring guide, or the spring, spring recoil spring plug, yeah. Is, if I lost that, can I use a forty-five caliber piece of brass? Is that the way that's designed to be? You know what? I've heard that before too, but I've yeah. never actually tried it. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've heard that. I'm not sure if it's an urban legend or not. Okay. This could be a good one to try. You know, well, I, it could be a good one to watch somebody else try. Yeah. I'm not sure <laughs> that I'm going to be a big fan of that one, but yeah, it, you know, I'm back to, you know, 
why are you taking your gun apart and we need to lose stuff? I mean, yes, yes I understand that stuff gets lost, yeah. and oh my God, you've never well, been in the field. You're, you know, like you said, when I'm coming, dropping down out of the helicopter, and I'm taking it apart to repair it, and I happen to drop that drop piece. Drop that piece, yeah, because, you know, from the prop wash, yeah. I guess, yeah, or so, rotor wash, but yeah. So that could happen. Um, one of, um, I think this came in from one of the listeners, as far as types of sites. Kind of sites you prefer on your 1911s? Um, well, this is a shameless plug, but it's actually true. I prefer 10.8 performance sites mm-hmm. on the rear. Um, it's a ledge style site that I can buy in different notch widths, 140 or 156, and it fits the gun very well. And it allows me to operate that gun with one hand off of the site, and it's made from real steel. Mm-hmm. It is not a MIM part. It's not a weak part. Yeah. I've broken lesser sites. Every, you know, I love, you know, people love the shape of the Novak and then you got a lot of sites that sweep and everything else. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is that none of those sites allow you to, to actually operate that gun one handed as effectively as you can with a good ledge style site. And the 10 8 performance sites are the ones that really do the job. Now on the front, um, I've got guns down in the safe, everything from red fiber op, green fiber op, brass bead and tritium, you know, the tritium filled night sights. Um, that's a personal preference thing. Yeah. But I can tell you with my old eyes, I'm really getting fond of the red fiber op. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to bed at 39, just fine. Woke up at 40 blind as a bat, been getting <laughs> worse ever since. Um, the, uh, the 10 eights, I don't, uh, I don't believe they make those for the classic line sigs, do they? They do not know, yeah. and it's, Why it's is that? well. The ten eight sights are flat, yep. and the Sig slide, the classic line slide, is oh, round okay, on the top. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And Heine makes them, mm-hmm. and Heine is very similar to the ten eight. But I'm not really all that impressed with the way Heine's fit because they're a flat sight sitting on a round surface. Mm. So you know, it's a lot like you know, you know, you, you draw a teeter totter, right? You yeah. draw a circle with a flat board sitting on across the top of it. Well, that's kind of what the site looks right. like. Yeah, and and it draws my eye away from looking through the rear notch, and I know it shouldn't, and I'm mm-hmm. not that good of a shooter if it does, but it does. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, it they, is what it is. Yeah, exactly. But um, it, you know, it's they do you know the ten eight sites. You know, as far as for you know, for example, with the M and P's. Um, and I'm looking at an M&P right now. You know, with us playing along at home. So yeah, with the M&P, they they work really well. They give you that very strong, solid sight that you can operate one handed. That I've abused and beat up, and I've dropped them, and I've done all kinds of nasty things to them. And I I, I don't use or recommend anything that I haven't thoroughly tried to destroy mm-hmm. at some point in time yep. or another. Um, so for me, those that's the way they work. You know, sites are an important piece that not a lot of people give 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 a lot of attention to. Um, you know, I have a friend who, you know, actually my neighbor who works for another gun manufacturer up here, who's he's got one of their new 1911s that came out, and he actually broke his front sight just shooting it. Hmm. And it was strictly because it was such a poorly made mim yeah. that you know, and the site they and the site was so bad. That it can only be made white dot. It, it can't. You can't drill it and put the tritium in it because it, the no, site wouldn't be able to to hold up. So it, sites are really important. And the average user goes, "Oh well, you know, what does it matter?" Well, if your front sight breaks off, you're kind of in a world of hurt. Mm. Now, granted, you're probably going to be point shooting anyways. But wouldn't it yeah. be nice to be able to to survive it in court afterwards? Um, you know, and in his case, you know, it, it's, you know, nobody ever would have thought he was going to fire as much as he fires through it. Um, but he's gotten into it. He's got the bug. And, you know, so he immediately gets a hold of it. He got one of the first commanders in the state. And I think he put uh, 600 rounds through it before he broke the front sight. Now, keeping that in mind, you know, does, you know, people are shooting their guns a lot more these days. Yeah. It used to be, you know, they would buy a gun. They'd put, you know, they'd buy a box of shells and that would last them for the entire time they owned the gun. You know, they might go out and fire a dozen rounds a year. Yeah. You know, nowadays, you know, it's it's not a good day on the range unless I break 500. So, um, yeah. you know, we do that quite often. So, it, I think people are shooting more and manufacturers are starting to catch on to that. But especially aftermarket manufacturers, they're making parts that actually hold up. 
You know, so when it, when it comes to that, I don't go for any type of adjustable sights on my guns. I'm not on my fighting guns. And the reason for that is, is because I can honestly tell you in all my life, whenever I've needed my gun, I've never actually seen my front sight. Mm-hmm. Um, not on my pistols. It's just, it hasn't been something that I actually remember seeing. But more importantly on that is the the rear sight needs to be strong enough to be able to take the abuse of that one-handed operation of getting dinged around, getting banged, getting hit, all of the other things that are going to happen to it. But more importantly, it needs to stay intact because when I tr- when I do look for my front sight, I need to have a notch to look through. And those t- uh, mechanically adjusted, screw-adjusted, adjustable sights have a tendency of coming apart at the worst possible time. The screws come loose. They work loose over time. They come out at zero. Then you got to start messing with them again. I'm not smart enough to think about all those things. Just give me a notch to look through. Yeah. So, you know, fixed hard sights is really what I'm after on that. I would concur with that as well. But um, another question that we had come up, uh, flat triggers versus curve triggers. What's the... uh, What's the deal with those? Well, not only flat versus curved, but how about length of trigger too? Remember, the the, the nineteen eleven is it's the it's the grown up. You know, if you played with GI Joes, you're probably a nineteen eleven user. I mean, it's uh, it allows you to do a lot of things to it. It is it's the the AR of the handgun world. You know, kind of like the Glock is too. But the nineteen eleven has got a lot of parts and stuff that you can do to make it fit your hand better, and the trigger is one of those. Remember, it's an inline trigger, so it moves forward and back. It's smooth. There's no lever or anything, so it's easy to to create lots of options. But to answer the base part of the question, the flat trigger itself is because the trigger, anywhere you put your finger on it, it's still going to be pushing straight back. And the trigger moves straight back. It doesn't move on a lever. So, like on levered triggers, you want to get your finger as low as possible because the further you are away, the more leverage you have, right? Mm-hmm. So, the less that trigger pull feels. Now, in this case here, you have a flat trigger. It, no matter where I stick my finger on that trigger, whether it's high, medium, low, perfect or not, if as long as I'm pressing, I'm still pressing it straight to the rear. Whereas with the curved triggers, if I get up high, I'm not only pressing to the rear, but I'm also kind of pushing upwards, or if I get to the bottom, I'm pushing downwards, and that can create some binding. Uh, and you don't want to you don't want to fit your trigger so loosely that you don't have that binding because then it's going to rattle around and probably not going to work correctly anyway. So it, flat triggers are for that, but more importantly, you know, it's the short trigger versus medium versus long, and then there's a lot of other things in there. But for the most part, you know, that is if you're pushing flat straight back. You're good to go. Now, people who are like me, who have little tiny short fat fingers, you know, we have to run short triggers. It's just mm-hmm. the way it works. And we tend to, yeah, we get used to it. And it's, I've, I've trained myself to get my finger on the trigger the same way every time. Do I achieve that every time? No. Yeah. But I'm still hitting. You know, I'm still hitting inside of that eight inch circle on the target. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does take some training, you know, to get used to it. And I think the flat trigger takes some of that out of it. Yeah. Recommended modifications for 1911. <laughs> uh, things that uh, you should definitely add, things that uh, you should definitely stay away from. Well, it, that, the hard thing with that is there's a lot of things now, or a lot of the guns are coming with a lot of stuff already done to it. But if you're looking at a basic stock 1911, you know, I, I would recommend a good reliability package. You know, you know, lower and flare the ejection port. Buy good magazines. Make sure the magazines work. Get a good extractor in it that's tuned correctly. Put a decent set of sights on it. And then shoot it and beat it into submission. Treat, you know, make sure it knows that you're in charge. And run it and run it and run it. And whatever parts break, replace them. Now, kind of what you were saying before about extractors. Is it something I can call up? You know, one of these gun guys and say, hey, I'd like to buy a tuned extractor. I mean... No, they need your gun. Yeah. And they have to tune it to so. the gun. So this is why it's so important that if you're going to be a 1911 you know, operator type mm-hmm. person, you really need to know how to tune. How to work on your... Fit and tune your, your gun. Um, 
and, and unfortunately, and it's really sad that most manufacturers, um, armorers classes for their 1911s, we, they don't talk at all about that kind of stuff. And it, and it really needs to be discussed because as a 1911 end user, you, you're going to have to have two guns, one at the gunsmith and one that's you're working on. <laughs> In fact, a lot of guys will have three. They'll have their backup gun, they'll have the one they're carrying, and then the one at the gunsmith. Yeah. Or you can learn to do it yourself. Now, after you realize that you can buy an extractor for, you know, 40 bucks, you know, 30 bucks, whatever, um, you know, that's going to be a good solid, like a bulletproof, you know, good tool steel extractor. Um, and then you end up having to pay another hundred dollars to have it tuned. You know, it's, it's, you pretty quickly learn how to tune your own extractor. And there's a lot of videos out there. There's a lot of videos out there and you kind of do it by trial and error. But I would tell you, don't do it trial and error on your carry gun. Yeah. You know, do it trial and error on another gun. 1911s are like tattoos and potato chips. You don't have just one. Um, but you know, try it out and learn how to operate it. And, you know, it's important though that, that they can, that you can learn to do those types of things. If you're going to be that 1911, you know, that end user, um, you can't treat it like you treat your Glock. You know, you can't ignore it. You know, you have to get, it's, it's, it is a prom queen. You know, it, it'll be a biker chick when you're in the fight, but you got to treat it like a prom queen to get it to the fight. So it's, it's important that people understand that. Uh, how about ambidextrous safeties? The thumb safety, ambidextrous thumb safeties. Um, until about two months ago, three months ago, I was adamantly against them. And the reason for that is because the design was so bad. The way they used them, or the way they designed them, was is the cross axle of the of the thumb safety is what holds in the grip safety, and gives the grip safety its 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 axle to from which it it pivots. And the ambidextrous units, whether they were the captured behind the grip, or there was the new style that the pin style where it was locking onto the fire or to the hammer pin, different styles out there. They all had the same problem. They, the f- axle from the left side and the axle from the right side interacted in the middle in a tab A slot B kind of configuration, right in the middle of the grip safety. Now the grip safety, believe it or not, gets a lot of torque against it because that's what you're holding the gun. You know, it's, yeah. you're literally, everything torques against that back into your hand. Um, and as well as the actual operation, the up and down operation, of that safety was only being done from the left side of the gun, from the strong side. And the, the slave side of the safety was just kind of along for the ride. And what happens is, is that tab A slot B kind of connection would start to stretch out over time. And pretty soon the safety wasn't forking properly or it wasn't mm-hmm. tracking properly. And there's always all kinds of things. Nighthawk Custom hated or didn't hate i shouldn't say that i don't want to put words in their mouth they were so vehemently against ambidextrous safeties that for the longest time and they may still have it on there but on their website it says we will not warranty any thumb safety that's an ambidextrous unit we'll put it in the gun for you no problem but we won't warranty it Hmm. and that that's how strongly they were against them i was against them for the same reason until wilson combat came out with a new style 1911 ambidextrous safety and that safety actually has a full length axle on both sides of the levers so the strong side and the slave side both have full axles but they are basically half moon shaped and they interlock on the connect against the safety's levers themselves not in the middle any longer Hmm. so you end up with a very strong really well working safety and an ambidextrous safety to boot. Now, is it necessary? You know, it's not for me because I've run single-sided for so long. As soon as I switch to my left hand, I already know how to take the safety on and off. I do it naturally. It's something that I've developed over years. Um, So even when I have ambi safeties, I found myself reaching over and doing the, you know, doing it with my, still shooting with, still taking the safety off with my left hand, I yeah. should say. Yeah. So it's not so much that um, it's a bad thing anymore. It's more of my training issue. But if you have a, a user who wants an ambi safety, they've got to have it, say they're that they're, they're left-handed or something. Mm. And 
they got to have it. And I would say that that's, you know, Wilson has solved it with that safety. Now, they solved it to the tune of $150 per unit. So you better be really willing to commit to it. Yeah. You know, I bought one. I tried it. I ran it. I liked it. But I took it back off. So what does that tell you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you had already kind of trained yourself beyond it anyway. Yeah, so. it's, it's one of those. So I'm not saying that they're, they're bad as much as it is. got to be careful. You know, mm-hmm. Kimber puts out a lot of guns. In fact, I think all their guns come with ambi-safeties. And it's the pin style. So basically, the slave side locks onto the hammer pin that has an extension on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like a keyway kind of system that locks in together. Um, and it seems to work. But it still has that same limitation where if you flip the strong side, you're going to notice on the, on the slave side that it's not tracking exactly the same yeah, way. And eventually you're going to run into a problem. Yeah. Another question that, that sometimes comes up, uh, thoughts on variants other than the 45 ACP, uh, the different uh, calibers. Calibers? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've tried 40 cal and it didn't work. Uh, I hear stories that there's going to be a 357 SIG version coming out, um, and I hear that it, it's going to work when they get it out. Um, so far to date, the most reliable has always been the 45 ACP. But I, that being said, I've got a Springfield Armory 9mm 5-inch gun and a Nighthawk Custom Talon II, which is a 4.25-inch gun, both in 9mm that, with Wilson Combat Mags, run flawlessly. And that's the caveat is if I try to use any other mags, they don't work. So our 1911s kind of, is that one of the inherent issues with them? Is they're magazine sensitive? They are mag finicky. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're, you know, 1911s are mag finicky, ammo finicky. But, um, you know, when you start to go to those other calibers, it's hard to find, you know, the magazine is such an important component to the gun that you could be chasing all kinds of problems on the gun that are mag related. So you got to know you're starting out with something that's good. Um, you know, it's important to, when you look at these other calibers, to to bypass that and just go straight for the mags that have worked. And we know that the Wilson Combat mags, they're especially in 9mm, work really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wilson's done a great job in development stuff, like him, hate him, indifferent to him, whatever. He's always done a lot of work in development. I think he makes, um, yes, the, I think he makes the best mags on the market. Chip McCormick makes good mags, but if you lay them on the table next to each other, I'm going to swipe the, the Wilson Combat every time. Um, and it's just important that you know that that's what you're working with. So mags, yes, they're mag finicky caliber wise. There are some really good 10 mils out there now. Um, I haven't messed around with the 10 mil 1911 much, only because I've got a Glock 20 and it works. Um, you know, but I don't mess around with much in the 10 millimeter range. You know, the reason I have a Glock 20 is it's my bear gun. You know, it, it can run around. I have hard cast bullets in there. Um, you know, that, you know, from double tap that do the job just fine. I'm sure they break up bone. Yeah. You know, and that's what I need for shooting bears, and it's full power 10 millimeter. It's not 40 cal stuff in a 10 millimeter case. <laughs> yeah. Um, so having, having, you know, if I had to choose between the two, I'm not sure I would go with a, a 1911 only because I'm going to do 15 and one in my, in my G20 versus, you know, again, eight or nine and one. Yeah. In that 40 slash 10 mil. But there's a lot of hog hunters who swear by their 10 mil 1911s, yeah. especially in the six inch versions and stuff. That they'll they're hunting with them just fine. Um, we don't have the hog problem up here yet, so I, I'm not worried about it yet. Not quite so, yet. Yeah, that's interesting because I think somebody on the Facebook page actually brought that out, uh, yeah. talking about the the G20s. Um, yeah. In answer to that question, if you put the G20 on the table next to a 10 mil 1911, I'd you know, and told me I had to choose, I'd take the 10 mil 1911 because I'm a 1911 guy. Yep. But if you told me I had to go out in the woods, I'd take the G20, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> with, with the right load. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Daniel had a question, speaking of uh, different versions, the STI 2011 in 9 millimeter. What, uh, any experience with those? Yeah, I built a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, talked to a lot of guys who built them. STI makes some good guns. The thing you have to remember about in the double stack guns 
is they're mag finicky. And you'll see the competition guys. And Dawson has made a career, Dawson Precision, he's made his career out of tuning STI mags for guys like Max Michelle. And you know, they, they have to be tuned just right. It's always a magazine issue. It's always some type of a feed issue. It's this, it's that. Nighthawk Custom is using STI 2011s and they're, they were building high cap guns off of that. Um, and they're doing a quite, you know, a really nice job with it, but it still ends up becoming very ammo or very magazine specific. Um, and very finicky. And then you have to keep them tuned and, you know, ask the competition guys, the high end guys, how much they value their mags. You know, they're tuned, well cared for 1911 SDI, 1911 mags, or I should say 2011 mags. Um, if I were looking at a double stack 1911 style, it's not a true 1911 gun, but a 1911 style gun, I would go with the Wilson Combat Spec Ops 9. And the reason that I would do that is, is because I know it works. Mine works. Run a lot of rounds through mine. They're proprietary magazines, but, you know, it was pointed out to me a couple of years ago, what gun doesn't fire a proprietary magazine? Yeah. You know. Yep. So. Now I got to do some actual reading off the list. Cause there you these go. are some of the, uh, some of the Facebook, uh, quotes. Actually, uh, this I think you kind of already touched upon a little bit. This is one where, you know, somebody's talking about, uh, some people like uh, Larry Vickers and Hilton Yam. Oh yeah, the specific maintenance requirements and how the old guns always seem to work, and we kind of already talked about that. The old guns. Yeah, just... I mean, you, let's go just to touch that real quick, and I'm not going to speak for Hilton at all. But what people the the hoopla that recently went around was people not understanding what Hilton and Tim Lau were putting out, and what they were saying was is that. You, as an individual end user, may be just fine keeping your one or two or three 1911s working. And that's just fine. Any 1911 can be made to run if you put enough time and money into it. They were talking about the 1911 as a choice for a large group distribution or a large group issuance. Mm -hmm. In other words, an agency, a department. Police department. You know, and they were trying to get the point across this is that you have to have a guy there who can take care of all of the stuff that's going to go wrong on those guns, you know, because they're going to require maintenance way beyond the average armorer's course. Mm -hmm. Who's going to fit the new extractors? Who's going to be on the range or every time there's a class to help keep these guys running? And you have to have that. Yeah. You know, and this is the question that we all have with the M45. Who's going to take care of it? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, that's why they bought 4,000 of them. Right? They're just going to put one away and issue yep. a new one. But that that's my question. Who's going to take care of those guns? And maybe the Marines have got some, you know, some good 1911 guys squirreled away someplace. But, um, you know, it, there's people have to put it in the proper context. They're not saying that the 1911s are bad. They're not saying that your three inch Colt Defender isn't a good gun. What they're saying is, is it's not a good choice for a large, issuance mm -hmm. and it really requires a lot of attention to keep it running and hopefully i didn't didn't get it too badly but i believe that was the message they were putting out um you know and i've understood it and i understand their extractor test and you know the the protocols that they've developed are to test guns not only for how they're performing but how they're gonna perform we're looking at how they're gonna be it's more diagnostics for future you mm -hmm. know it, is this thing gonna hold up over time or not sure it works for you and sure, it works for the 150 rounds you put through it at the range. Yeah, so it's not only is this gun running right now, but is it going to be running in the future? Is it going to continue to run? Mm -hmm. And that's what we look for. You know, sure, it runs with your ball ammo. How many times have you seen somebody run a whole bunch of ball ammo through their gun, say, you know, I put 250 rounds through it, it's perfect, and the first thing they do is they put in, you know, they lay load it with the defensive out. And remember, these, you know, as, ammo finic as mag finicky as, as they are, they're also ammo finicky. The 1911 was designed to run a long cartridge, not a short one. And that's why they've had to change ramp angles. And like when you go to 9mm or 40 cal or even going to short bullets like the 200 or 180 grain 45 caliber rounds, you have to change the geometry on the gun. You have to go to a ramped barrel. 
in order to get these things to feed right because it wasn't intended to fire that short cartridge. So now they've had to rework it, and that's why a lot of times you see bull barrels also include a ramped barrel. Hmm. You know, both of my 9 mils are ramped, and they work fine because of the ramps. They'd never work if they weren't ramped. Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of some of the stuff that I see that, you know, people need to, they need to take it into consideration and understand that, that on the, on the grand scale, you have to really, you know, when people go, you know, my, my three 1911s work perfectly, they're actually proving Hilton and Tim's point. <laughs> you yeah. know, yes, you're right. They do. Yeah. But you're an officer, and I give you a 1911. You carry it in and out of your car, in the heat, in the cold. You, you're you on duty. You're on details. It snows on you. It rains on you. It's heat. It's dust. It's dirt. Even if you care for it perfectly, it still requires your maintenance time. Now, what else is on your belt that you have to maintain? Right? Think of yeah. all the things on a law enforcement officer's belt. So, and then it goes, then go back to the rest of his uniform. From his boots to his hat, he's got to take care of all that. Yep. All right? So, does it, all of these things are competing for maintenance time. Yeah. And we've talked about it before on the show that some people might assume that because they carry a gun for a living that they're a shooter, but that would be a incorrect assumption in, in my experience anyway. Well, and also, it's not a huge piece of the law enforcement officer's job. You know, it's, I've, all the ones that I've talked to, you know, it's, you know, they're, they need more training operating their cars than they do yep. shooting because they, they're in their cars operating it more regularly than they are on shooting yeah. somebody. Yep. So. This was, uh, somebody called Combat Mindset. I don't think that's their real name, but, hmm. uh, what are the performance differences in an entry level gun like a Springfield mil spec versus a Wilson or Nighthawk? So I guess if you're going to spend that extra money, what are you, what are you paying for? Reliability. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're paying for, um, let's do it this way. You're paying for uh, a machined frame where the machine wasn't running as fast as is humanly possible. It's not cast. Um, you're, you're dealing with, you know, hand-chosen parts made, for, you know, that aren't MIM. You're dealing with hand-fit parts. Not assembled by somebody. You can remember most manufacturers, the people who put guns together, they're assemblers. They're not necessarily gun people. Yeah, you know, so it's they're just putting this thing together. It's production, it's about numbers. Where these custom guns, when you're comparing a Wilson Combat to a Springfield GI, um you know, just just starting with that alone, but then let's you know start start with the nose to the tail. Yeah, you know, match grade barrel, match grade bushing versus Common parts, dovetailed sights versus staked front sight and just a, you know, maybe a dovetail little notch on the rear, or as opposed to getting a true Novak or a ledge style Heine or 10.8 performance sight. Um, you know, tool steel parts, high end springs, high end finish, a tuned extractor, a tuned ejector, a gun that's been test fired by somebody that we know works. A sear that's been mated with a hammer, that's been mated with a sear spring, that's been mated with a trigger. All of these things were put together to work together as a unit, not just a bin of parts. And I mean, you know, those of us who've seen the inside of a factory, a firearms assembly factory, you know, we, we see it. You walk up to somebody's bench and they've got a tray full of frames on one side and a tray full of something on the other and a whole bunch of parts bins right in front of them. They just keep pulling parts and putting guns together and then they send them down the road. All right, and it's about the volume. You know, if you want to pay, you know, six hundred dollars for, uh, um, or even sub six hundred dollars for, say, a, an RIA, a Rock Island gun, that's fine. Um, understand that that's what you're going to get. You know, you may see some plastic. I've seen plastic parts. Wow. You know, plastic mainspring housings and triggers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just all these different things. So it, the difference is it's truly night and day, but it's the quality of the parts. But more importantly, I can buy a quality bunch of parts, spec it out and go to Brownells and buy it all and have it laying in front of me. But if I don't know how to fit those parts together and I don't have the years of experience that, say, you get from a Wilson Combat kind of, you know, the cellular assembly that he does, um, you know, or the, 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 the touch that Ed Brown 
puts into his guns. You know, the, you know, that type of thing with that, that artistry, you know, or the sheer muscle power attitude from Les Bear. I mean, he's a big muscle car guy, mm-hmm. right? You know, he builds his guns to be beefy and strong and accurate and perfect. You know, precision machining is what you get out of Les Bear when it comes to that. And that's why they're so tight. You know, if you don't have that art, you don't have that gun. And really, you can buy, you know, that, that, that Springfield GI, but you're going to dump a couple of grand into it to get it to the point where you should have just bought, you know, the higher end gun. And on that note, though, it's important to remember that the, not all, it's not all Wilson Combat or, or Les Bear or Ed Brown or, you know, it's not all $3,000 guns. You know, and in fairness to some of them, it's are $2,000 plus guns. Because there's some good guns out there. Springfield Loaded's, you know, Springfield TRP's, um, you know, the Dan Wesson Valor, the Dan Wesson Specialist, the Dan Wesson V-Bob that are, you know, and even the Fusion Firearms, if you haven't looked at Fusion's 1911s, Bob Serva started Fusion Firearms. Bob Serva used to be in charge of Dan Wesson's 1911 program. You know, if you look at those guns, these are people who know how to build them, and you can see the difference in them. And you can see not only the commitment to the art, but the 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 respect that they show the piece, the respect to the history, the respect to the design, to how it functions, understanding that putting it together right is 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 the world mm-hmm. on whether or not that 1911 works. And I think on that note, though, there was another question about somebody who had asked, "Is it better to buy a gun or to build from parts?" And I would tell you that if you have the level of experience, it is better to build it from parts to to fit every part yourself. And if you don't have that level of experience, find somebody who does and pay them to do it. Mm-hmm. You will never be sorry. Yeah. All right. And maybe it's just paying paying Dan Wesson, or it's just paying Springfield for one of their high end guns. And they make great high end guns, but they're in the sub two thousand range, which makes them affordable. And I know some people are going sub two thousand. I can buy four <laughs> Glocks for that, yeah. and you're absolutely right. You can. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, nineteen elevens are awesome. Right, they are great guns, but the technology that we have developed just in the last ten years, let alone over the last hundred, tends to make people scratch their heads when they look at the nineteen eleven. So if you if you don't understand the whole mystique and all of that, you probably don't appreciate them as much. It's the you know which is better to ride on, you know a nineteen whatever late you know early model Harley, say like a Panhead, and I don't know know them that great, but or you know that's been completely restored, or like a BMW motorcycle. Well, what are you trying to do with it? You know mm-hmm. which statement are you trying to make? Yeah, you know, and and that's where you got to decide. You know, do you spend sixteen to eighteen thousand dollars on the BMW motorcycle, or do you spend forty to sixty thousand dollars on a completely restored Harley? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people who are going to go the Harley, of course, and it's just because they're Harley people. Nineteen eleven people are kind of like that. Yeah. This is uh, from our friend Bruce um, Bruce House, who we have in class regularly up at Sig. Uh, he had a multi-part question. What are the top three malfunctions that occur on, like, an off-the-shelf model? Well, that, that gets back to the quality of the off-the-shelf model. Yeah, so that but, various, yeah. that various levels of... If you pay, if you pay over $1,200 for your 1911, you better not have any malfunctions. Yeah. Um, but typically, what happens are feedway binding issues. There's feedway issues. In other words, the feed ramp starts to hang up. You know, the round starts hanging up on the feed ramp somewhere, and that's that's kind of normal. The other one is poorly tuned extractor issues. Not you know, and remember that even if it's an internal extractor from the factory, the guy who put it in the gun does not necessarily know what he's doing. So even if I if you gave me a brand new Kimber today, you know. Um, I, I'm sure I would go and take it, set that gun off to the side until I had a chance to go through it. You know, I, I, I would I'd definitely be tuning the extractor, uh, taking a look at it and making sure that, you know, that it was, uh, that it was in spec. And that's just because it's just, you know, when you produce, 
five thousand of something a month, you know, or more. Yeah, it's really hard to to keep track of something that has to be hand fit, as opposed to if you're producing fifty of them a month. Well, then that's a different story. Yeah, you know. Um, and then the number three one is usually mag related issues because what do what do manufacturers do? Probably the, include the cheapest magazine they can get their hands. Yeah, on. the fewest number and the least yeah. expensive version that they can. Um, and they'll say it works with the gun just fine. You're right, it did. You know, it worked with the test guns just fine. But we are now 5,000 units past the test guns. And the com- the manufacturer is now comfortable with supplying you magazines. And all of the things that go in with human nature. Yeah. So do we know for sure that those mags work? Usually not. You know, it's a, it's a 50-50 deal. Um, I'm famous for, you know, I'll pick up a new 1911 you know, it's like at the Academy, if I get another one, pick up one of those. I don't even take the magazines. I give them away there. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's, it, and it's just, be, that's me. I'm not bad-mouthing those magazines. I just don't, for me, on my particular experience, I only trust one mag. Um, yeah, that's not to say that they, you can't use them for other things, but, you know, um, I just tend to give them to the guys who use them. You know, it just makes it, it's, it's easier. I don't get them into my rotation. I don't worry about them. Um, they but breed with your other ones. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass me. You know, have them get embarrassed. <laughs> you know, it's the, you know, you have the cool kids on the playground and then you got the, you know, yep. you put those other magazines in there, but it's usually a mag, you know, mag related issues. And that's just because they're, they're trying to go least expensive as possible on that kind of thing. And I understand that that's, but there's a reason why when the FBI spec the 1911 from H, you know, for HRT, they spec'd it specifically with Wilson Combat 47Ds. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why the M45 comes spec'd only with Wilson Combat 47Ds. You know, and, and it's, there's a lot of departments out there that require that or agencies. Sure, we'll buy 1911s from you, but you gotta put a good mag with it. Yeah. So well, you, you kind of already uh, spun into Bruce's second question. Um, basically, is there anything the end user can do to address some of those things? You already talked about the magazine, um, you know, well, getting yourself better magazines. Any anything else that the if end you user have can address? A, yeah, if you have a well extractor wise, you should learn how to tune your extractor. Remember, here's the thing with extractors: we keep talking about them so much, but they're in a, such an important piece. You know, they they are as important in my mind as the magazine is. Um, make sure that you know how to tune the thing. And remember, you can only tune it once. You can't, if a, if an extractor starts to fail, it's spring steel. Mm. You can't just give it more bend and expect it to keep going. It's going to want to go back to what it was. You know, they create, you know, they do develop a certain set. And, you know, that's why it's important to, to have those spares. And so you, you can tune that extractor, but when you tune it, just tune two or three of them at a time. There's an investment in the gun. So to get ahead of it, plan on, you know, if I got a brand new 1911, plan on taking it apart. I do, every one. You know, I've got, there's a whole series of things, list of stuff I can go down for you if you want to get into it about when I get a new 1911, the stuff that I do to it. You know, and some people will go, wow, that's weird, but I can tell you why for each and every step. Yeah. Um, but this is the preventative thing. You know, going down and, you know, being ahead of the game. Why not just tune that, ex- test and tune that extractor ahead of time? You know, get good magazines and use good magazines. You know, find the magazines that work and keep, make sure you keep using them. Now, if you have feedway issues, aside from a little polishing, unless you are an experienced 1911 person who's done this before, don't start trying to mess with that feed angle. That feed with that feed rep angle or the barrel or anything like that, the mouth of the barrel, take it to somebody who knows what they're doing. YouTube and uh, the Dremel tool? You know, oh. hey, you know, Dremel tools are awesome if you are working on your Glock and you want to grind off those humps on the front. <laughs> they work great for that. And then you can re-stipple it. But, you know, I, I it's not... I, I get really nervous whenever I see a Dremel around the 1911. To me, that's kind of like... The, the guy with the really high end, super nice, you know, say seven series Mercedes that's black 
and he takes it to one of those car washes with the swirly, scratchy things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 the same image comes to mind every time. Yeah. So, are there drop-in parts that um, you would recommend to, or semi-drop-in parts to, you know, to deal with those type of malfunctions? Well, yeah. What with a new nineteen eleven. If it doesn't have a flat mainspring housing, I put one on. That's a personal preference thing. But also, I changed the mainspring. And I changed the mainspring to a lighter mainspring, basically to 18 pounds. I know 18 pounds works on the primers that I hit. And the reason for that is it gives me a lighter trigger pull. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit smoother because there's not as much tension. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming I'm going to leave the hammer and the, you know, the firing mechanism and everything else alone, I change over to a short trigger because I have to. But yep. when I'm changing over to a short trigger, I stone the, the wells, the, the, the rails inside the frame where the trigger bows ride. So I have a stone that's specifically designed for this that I stone that out and smooth that out quite a bit. Cause a lot of times there's, hang up in there from excess finish or any types of things like that. And I'll, so I'll stone that out and then I'll put the, then I'll fit the new trigger. I go to grips. I change over to, to grips. I usually, I prefer either VZ or like a 10, eight grip with a big cutout on the left grip panel that allows me to feed my thumb directly to the mag release. If it doesn't have an extended mag release on it, I put one in it and that's a fitting process. That's is most of them are not drop in. If it doesn't have a certain type of thumb safety, I immediately change over to that. Now, when I change that thumb safety, what I'm looking for is a wide paddle that rolls, that isn't straight, that it's got a bend to it that allows it to roll forward. And the reason I do that, and this is the answer to somebody's questions, is because I'm a safety rider. Meaning when I draw that pistol out, my th- as soon as I get my firing grip in the holster, my thumb is on top of that safety. My thumb never comes off of the top of that safety, not even to put it back on. All right, my thumb is always on top of that safety. And I use the meat from the base of my thumb on my left palm to roll that safety back up when I put it back on. Mm -hmm. So when I come to a low ready, all I have to do with my grip is roll my, my left wrist forward a little bit, and it puts that safety back on. I never want to take my thumb off the top of that safety. Because as soon as I do, then I'll probably forget to put it back up there. And then if a bad guy comes back to life like they've been known to do, I'm busy trying to press on a safety that ain't there. It's not under your thumb. So it's always on top of there. So I change over to that safety because that's what I found works for me. Hmm. Now, grips, it's a couple of things. I won't put grips on the gun that cover the mainspring housing. And I always change over to flathead screws. I don't understand why they're using the Phillips head screws, but I always change over to flat head screws. That's so you can yeah. have the Phillips head screw thing with your little coat hanger tool and all the other special gadgets. Yeah, exactly. Take your so, apart. so I, I do all of that. So, you know, those are the basics, the very basics. Now, I might change recoil springs, you know, and I'm certainly going to change the sights. If it doesn't have that 10-8 ledge on the rear of it, that's what's going on. Now, I've done this. I've gotten brand new Wilson combat guns that I've done this to, you know, and it's, you know, it's just the way I am. It's what I do. And this is that, remember I was talking about, we're weird. 1911 guys tend to be very idiosyncratic, and everybody likes to be a certain way. So when we look at that, you know, I, I won't use grips that don't support the plunger tube. So I don't use any slimline grips. Slim gun grips are great for getting somebody who's got hands that you have to have pretty small hands to not be able to fit a 1911 anyways. But, you know, they help people get around the front of, on the gun a little bit more. And the slimline grips allow you to get that reach. But what they don't do is support the plunger tube. And what does that mean? The plunger tube is the tube that has the spring in it that gives the tension not only to the thumb safety, but to the other end of it has a detent that gives the tension to the slide catch lever. And if that doesn't have proper tension, the slide catch lever can bounce around and either not lock open or lock open on when there's still rounds in the gun. And that's a problem. It can also, if the plunger tube comes loose, that plunger tube can pop out and it can actually lock the safety either up or down. You know, more likely it's going to lock it in the up position. And now you can't get the gun to work. 
So, you know, will I check the staking on my plunger tube? Yeah, absolutely. I'll check the staking on my plunger tube. And, and nothing else. I'll drop a couple of, of drops of the green Loctite, the wicking grade Loctite, mm-hmm. on those and let it work its way down in there to try to kind of help glue it in place. Plunger tubes are a weak spot. So these are all little things that as I get a brand new gun, I'm checking all these out. I'm taking a look at it. And it's, does this make sense? Is it right? Is it not? And, you know, some people go, you don't need to do all of that. But I have had brand new guns, you know, from reputable manufacturers. Some guys, some manufacturers, you know, one that produces, you know, what, 35 to 50,000 guns a month, 1911s, you know, where I've had plunger tubes come loose in less than 500 rounds. So all of these things are, you know, you got to take a look at it and know. And that's why, you know, when somebody says, you know, I put 150 rounds for my gun, it works just fine. I always say, really, a whole 150? You know, it, it really go out and run the gun. Yeah. You know, find out for sure it's your life. You know, work it. Well, I think that's a uh, a pretty good place to wrap up. What I'd like to do is kind of give you a chance to plug uh, what you have going on. I know besides the uh, you know, the classes I see you teaching, uh, you still blogging as well. Uh, yeah, I'm still. I haven't recently because I haven't had any time, and I've kind of been remiss on it. But um, uh, still writing for ModernServiceWeapons.com, and even if you know, ignore what I write there because I'm not that good. But there's a lot of really good info out there. Um, you know, Tim Lau and Hilton Yum are the guys when it comes to 1911s. They know their stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rank them up there with Vickers and Wilson and the rest of those guys. Um, they really do know the guns, and they understand them from a lot of different aspects. Um, you know, from the competition side, from the law enforcement side, from the civilian carry side, uh, good information there beyond 1911s, um, cause we talk about everything there. It's modern service weapons. Um, other than that, you know, there's the normal stuff. We do have an advanced tactical shotgun class that we added at SIG, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's a one day class. The first one's on the 27th of August. And, um, you know, it's a, it's the class is going to take the shotgun out to about a hundred yards mm-hmm. and we're going to see, you know, exactly what people can and can't do with them. Some real good positional shooting, but, um, very little birdshot, almost all buck and slug. Protective shooting is another class that we've added. And the protective shooting class is a, a class where basically you learn to protect people. It's a civilianized version of kind of the secret service package. And what we teach there is, how to move your loved ones out of the way, how to work with them, how to get in front of them, um, and still engage the target. There's a lot of one-handed shooting in the class, uh, and it has a full day of simunitions in it, full day of scenario-based training, and we will see some interesting stuff. Yeah, that's a completely different show to talk about on that one. Um, but uh, you know, the principles of personal survival and things like that, we're still teaching. Uh, the biggest one that, you know, we've developed at the SIG Academy now, and we're just putting together the flagship class, is a thing called cohort training. And what I had is I had a student, two students come to me and said, we want to put together a group of 10 people that meet once a month for, say, six months. And then they want to be able to basically lead that training in whatever direction that the group wants to go with it. And this was born out of the idea that very few people can work at the range the way that we train them at the academy. And if you start to put these cohorts together, they get a different instructor each time. So they start to get a different type of level of training. And the idea is they commit to, say, a six-months run. So they'll come six times, and there's a reduced rate. Um, Adam put it out there at $175 per student per, per class. And they get a full eight-hour day of training, but it's the same group of people every time with a different instructor focusing on what the what the group schedules. So they may say from classes one, two, and three, we want to work pistol stuff. Uh, four, five, and six, we want to work pistol and rifle. Seven, eight, and nine, we want to work pistol, or pistol and shotgun. And class number 10, we want to work three gun. Or any number of different things. Maybe they want to work some simunitions classes in there where it's, they do some force on force instruction for the day. It's up to the class. So what it is is a group of 10 people, 10 people who, who've trained before coming together and they all have the same skill levels. Mm-hmm. They've all taken the same. So it doesn't have to be, they don't have to all be experts, but they all need to be in the same, you know, area. Yeah. And I think this cohort training thing is going to catch on. 
just because it, it allows the students to have more of a say in what's going to be running, you know, and it's, it's, we're going to be starting the flagship thing on it, uh, coming up here soon. And I think it's going to really work out. So if there's people who are interested in that, they can contact me or they can contact the academy and we can certainly, you know, help them build a cohort. Um, you know, they'll have to build a group of 10 people and the commitment is the, is the trick. Yeah. They, they can't do it once or twice and then back out. They're, they're going to get charged for all six, you know, or all 10 classes or all, I'm sorry, all six classes, um, whether they show up or not, because we're scheduling it out. We're putting an instructor in there for them. We're giving up rain, you know, tying up ranges, things like that. But it's a way to train at least once a month and to keep those skills really sharp that a lot of people up to this point haven't been able to do. You know, and for, you know, for that kind of price, that's, that's really kind of, I think it's unbeatable. It's very generous, Adam, when he, yeah. when he, when he put it together like that. So, you know, that, that's what we're working on here. Um, you know, obviously I teach the protective shooting class. I'm a big fan of it. I think all shooting is protective. Uh, based on the world that I come from, I don't, you know, I, I don't do a lot of the other stuff. So for me, you know, if you don't know how to move your loved ones out of the way, you don't know how to handle the situations, you don't know when to leave your gun in the holster, when not to, uh, things like that, it can be difficult. And the best part about the protective shooting is, is that we really encourage the husbands and the wives to come together mm-hmm. and to develop their plan. So I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me just do some shameless plugs there. No, I think you're, you're kind of being modest because you make it sound like those are all classes that that SIG is developing, but really those are ones that you've pretty much been instrumental in developing. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. yeah. You're being kind of modest, but uh, anything else going on? How can somebody contact you? If, uh... Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me is I'm on Facebook, um, and as long as you have a real name, mm-hmm. and you know, I will accept your friend request. I have 2,700 some odd friends on Facebook. I didn't know I knew that many people, but <laughs> um, I, I've limited it back to, you have to have a real name. So don't, don't have a name like Molen Lobby and expect me to accept your friend request. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I put my name out there, be a yeah. real person. I'm easy enough to find It's Scott Ballard. I'm the only Sig Sauer instructor there. That's Scott Ballard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's the best way to get a hold of me. You can get a hold of me through the Academy um, you know, if you call the Sig Sauer Academy, you can get all in touch with me there. Um, but again, I think the Facebook connection is probably the easiest and the quickest. It's why I developed a Facebook page is to make it easy for people to get a hold of me. Well, Scott, I know I learned a lot about 1911s. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for sharing with us. No, thank you for having me. It's been fun. That was it for episode number 90. Hope you guys got something out of that. Enjoyed that episode with Scott Ballard. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. As if this episode wasn't packed full of enough awesome. Here's some Souls Harbor. See you next time. GunfighterCast, out. It's all you can take. You'll feel it straight off. The next move you make. But you're so overwhelmed You're feeling the pain With one look around you You're feeling the shame again Stand up and raise your best The time has come Starting to break No running away from No one that you play But you can't overcome this You try to refrain The next look around you You're feeling no shame Awesome.
Just as a deal, disgrace how you feel. The shame. 